Welcome to the FNO InsureTech Podcast, a place where movers and shakers from all points within the insurance ecosystem gather and discuss all things InsureTech. We talk about how technology and innovation are affecting and driving change in the industry. Here are your hosts, Matt D. Fothery, Lee Boyd, and Rob Beller. Hey, podcast world. We are back, FNO InsureTech, with your co-hosts, Rob Beller, and out there in Texas somewhere is... Lee Boyd. Hi, everybody. Hey, Lee. How are you today? You know, I'm good. I'm sitting here staring out a window, and a thunderstorm is about to roll in. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of uh, kind of neat, eerie, all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Is it eerie because a thunderstorm's rolling in or because a thunderstorm's rolling in and you are in a building entirely by yourself? You're the only occupant. I'm in a building all by myself made of metal. So <laughs> there's, a, there's a little bit of issue there. Uh, but it is a little weird because it's dark outside, the building's dark, and I'm waiting for somebody to jump out and scare me. For those of you that don't know, we have two buildings in Waco, Texas at our National Operations Center and headquarters, and one that Lee is sitting in is built for about 100 people, I think, or so. Right, yeah. And um, they're all home, except Lee. They are all home. Except Lee. So Lee is not only uh, taking care of the facility and everything else, but also um, doing the janitorial work and some other things. I am. I take out my trash, and I sit here and stare out the window, wait for the mailman to show up, or, or mail lady. I wait for her to show up every day, and I'm, I'm doing my part for the company. Well, we like that you are um, sitting and thinking and planning. Mm-hmm. And speaking of that, we yeah. have a honestly very special episode. This is one This is one you've been very excited about, haven't I, you? I'm, I'm all excited. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Twitter about well, it. Well, why is that? Why are you so excited? Because we have two highly respected, well-known people from the InsurTech world, active people in the InsurTech ecosystem, major influencers from the InsurTech world, joining us today to talk about what's what's next. What does all this mean? Yeah. COVID, what does COVID-19 mean to the InsurTech world? What kind of effect is it going to have? What does it mean for what's coming next? Right. What's, what's the new normal, et cetera? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Today's episode will really be a discussion about what's going on and, and what can we expect and what are we seeing? It's just a really good discussion to help all of our audience uh, come together and think about what is next for us. Right. What might change? We have Martha Noteris from Brewer Lane, managing partner at Brewer Lane, formerly of XL Innovate, a, a, a very well-known person in the venture capitalist community within InsureTech and FinTech, and Caribou Honig, the chairman, co-founder of InsureTech Connect, uh, joining us to speculate and think about, uh, from a very educated standpoint, what does all this mean and where is it going? Yeah. Yeah. I'm hoping today we're going to get to talk about what does this mean for startups? How are the incumbents handling this? Uh, What, where's the money? Is the money still out there? Is there still uh, money to invest? And uh, what, what is that going to look like in the future? Do you, do you go about it a different way? 
Right. Uh, so just just a little bit different episode for us, but it's all about insure tech and it's all about something that affects us every day. Right. So uh, w- without further ado, we will move into this and hope you enjoy as much as we enjoyed uh, producing it. Our episode with Martha Noteras and Caribou Honig to talk about COVID-19 and its effect on the insure tech world. Hey, everybody. We are uh, very privileged today to have two special guests on with us to talk about a big topic that uh, many of us are wondering about and uh, contemplating um, its impact and effect. And and those guests are Martha Noteras, Managing Partner at Brewer Lane, formerly of XL Innovate, and Caribou Honig, co-founder and chairman of InsureTech Connect, two very prominent people in the InsureTech community and who have uh, their pulse on what's going on in the community. So we thought that it would be great to have both of them on as guests to talk about the question of what in the world does COVID mean to the InsureTech world and ecosystem? And so yeah. um, we we welcome you guys. Thank you for being with us today. Where Thank where y'all. where do we find you today? I'm assuming it's at home. I am working from home. Uh, I'm in my basement in Richmond, Virginia. <laughs> safely in your basement. That's and right. Martha. Uh, and I am safely uh, at home in Los Angeles. Cool. Well, and we hope everyone listening is safely at home too. And you guys, you guys know each other. Yeah, you have a little bit of background with one another. Is that true? Yeah, that, that's right. Um, you know, Martha and I were venture capitalists at the same time. She's continued on that path. Uh, I detoured a little bit with uh, this little insure tech conference I'm involved in. But um, yeah, in, in fact, uh, not only were we uh, VCs at the same time, but as I was thinking about this idea of an insure tech conference, uh, Martha was one of the first, if not the first person that I floated the idea in front of and said, hey, you know, do you think this this idea of bringing together entrepreneurs and the investors and the innovation executives from the industry, you know, makes any sense? Would that be interesting? And um, lucky for me, she did, she said, yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I've always sort of appreciated um, and, and still can remember that conversation back in 2015, talking with her about it. I just regret that I said, yeah, you go do that. And I didn't say, I'd like to back you. You know, you know, Martha, what did, I mean, you, you look at, at Insured Tech, it is a huge conference. I mean, is that something that whenever he was talking about that, uh, is that something you ever envisioned? Well, it was interesting because um, I, I knew that uh, Caribou was a visionary because we actually met at Money 2020, which at the time had 10,000 participants. Wow. And here was Caribou saying, so I'm thinking about doing an insure tech conference, you know, like Money 2020. And mm-hmm. I thought, wow, he definitely has his eyes on the prize because we're not even sure that insure tech is going to be a thing you can invest in on an ongoing basis. Right. But I, I should have uh, listened to Caribou. I, I think that was my takeaway. She, she patted me on the head and sent me on my way encouragingly. <laughs> it was very nice. And what year was that? Do you recall, Caribou? That, w- that would have been uh, October of 2015. Oh, 
Okay. And that I think that's a great lead in for, you know, where we'll start this this conversation. And that is we're 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 talking about InsureTech, something that is relatively in the world of technology and investment, something that's in its early stages and somewhat infantile, if you will, or in its infancy. And it's been chugging along at a fabulous pace, as both of you guys know, and you're, you're both integral in. And here comes COVID kind of out of nowhere really quickly and has hit, you know, all aspects of the economy. But we're, we're here today to talk about the InsurTech ecosystem, and it's hit it head on. Let's start with the big question. And, uh, and I'll put this out to you first, Martha. From a very high level... What does COVID mean to this young InsurTech world that you guys are so involved in? Well, I think it actually means very different things to different parts of InsurTech. So uh, it really depends on what problem you're solving. And I think the other thing that the impact really depends on is where you are in your funding cycle. And I think the companies that have funded before the beginning of 2020 or earlier on in Q1 are in a relatively strong position. I think that uh, the companies that are trying to sell something direct to the consumer are having probably more struggles. I, I think we're seeing a very uneven performance, but overall a very strong desire to be as liquid as possible. Yeah, you know, uh, this does call for the old Warren Buffett saying, I think it is, only when the tide goes out do you see who's not wearing a bathing suit. Like <laughs> in a world which is flush with cash where, um, you know, there's just a lot of capital uh, chasing after deals and where, you know, the, the incumbent insurers and reinsurers and brokers, you know, have almost a little bit of uh, anxiety and fear over, okay, we got to do something in, involving InsurTech. Uh, you know, that's a tremendous tailwind. Uh, and, you know, quite frankly, I think that the, the tailwind there uh, is, is reducing. Uh, if for no other reason, then like, you know, the incumbents, they've got other fish to fry right now. They've got other things to worry about. InsureTech may have been a top five priority, maybe top three for a bunch of them. Um, you know, it, it drops down a couple notches in terms of, okay, what are we going to focus on uh, over the next few months? Um, and, you know, certainly the VCs, I think, are becoming more conservative and and concerned and making sure that they've got the, the capital for their existing portfolio first and foremost before they worry too much about, uh, you know, the next company to invest in. So do you see this in terms of kind of a how, how it's going to affect these companies in the short term and then maybe in the long term things go back to normal and what they were before all of this got started? So short term... I, I will say, um, you know, I, in my prior firm, we did a lot in fintech, right? More the, the banking side things, payments, lending, wealth. Um, I know Martha and her firm do both fintech and insurtech today. Uh, I, uh, I'll say, I think the insurtech folks, relatively speaking, have got it pretty easy compared to what many or most of the, the fintech folks are going to be enduring over the next six months. So, why is that? Why, why do you say that? Well, look, you know, um, the the lending world, right? The lending world, it's not sensitive to coronavirus or work from home 
per se, but the lending world is very sensitive to the macro economy. Right? Sure. If there's a recession, right, um, that's a big deal for uh, for the lenders, um, uh, and you know, particularly when you get into these sort of really deep recessions, uh, that's the case. Uh, even payments, right, which is normally one of the more resilient parts of um, of finance and banking and fintech, even payments, right, the the volumes. Right, can go down dramatically. I mean, I've, I've watched Square, right, one of the you know success stories of fintech over the last decade. You know, their stock price got walloped as people were seeing. Okay, well, there's all these restaurants, all these mom and pop brick and mortars that were so enabled by Square from a payments processing perspective. Right, all the Square terminals uh, at the mom and pops are just you know shut down, sitting idle. Um, yeah, um, and so. You know, I think about asset management, right? And you know, when when the Dow is down thirty percent, that's uh, pretty rough for the asset managing side. Um, by comparison, you know, you look at just the insurance industry, um, and I, I'm I don't pretend to truly be an expert in it. In fact, I, I'm sure I know less about the actual insurance industry than anyone else on this this conversation. <laughs> but like, you know, yes, yeah, commercial insurance that looks a little scary to me. Um, and I'm sure that the low interest rates are causing conniptions for the life insurance people out there. Uh, but you know, not necessarily, you know, total destruction. Martha, what, what are your thoughts there? Well, I think that's a really interesting take on the topic, uh, Caribou, in terms of my view of what happens to the insure techs, I think so much of this is going to depend where they are in their funding cycle and in their ability to turn down burn in terms of use of capital. Because I think the most important thing is staying alive until the economy turns its attention back to the same issues which will exist for insurtechs. There are a few right now who are getting traction out of this situation. Right. Those include companies that are doing virtual property inspections. Um, I have also heard of some payments companies that are doing well in helping insurers digitize processes that they should have been digitized a long time ago, but now suddenly they have remote workers who can't process or shouldn't be having to come into the office to process paper checks. So I think that there are a few standouts who will actually prosper during this time. I think a lot of insurtechs are scrambling to see how they can make their cash last longer or finish funding rounds, some of which got underway before the uh, COVID uh, was really raging and some of which have even been launched in the past couple of weeks with optimism that uh, VCs will find value. And we're we're starting to see um, reports of various insurtechs already starting to cut back and tighten their belts as much as possible. Isn't that correct? Yes, we are. Uh, I think we've we've seen some layoffs, um, and I think that uh, that people are being prudent. Nobody wants to lay off uh, strong team members, but I think that there is always the desire to survive and to make decisions early, as early as possible, 
to allow um, you know, a couple extra weeks of, of cash in the bank. Martha, we always hear a lot about uh, people saying this is the new normal, and we are now in a world uh, that we never predicted, we never expected to be in. And I'm curious, uh, what does that hold for you, do, do you think? How will, how will this new world of um, everything we know affect you in maybe decision-making and investments? Uh, what, what, what do you think? I think the uh, the phrase that I've seen, I was just reading a McKinsey report on this topic, and they don't even refer to the new normal, they refer to the next normal. Uh-huh. And I think even the concept that we've created a new fit, uh, phrase, and Dr. Fauci has told us that we shouldn't expect to go back to pre-COVID days, uh, I think uh, it, it will, we'll, we'll see a lot of changes. In terms of how I think it will affect us at Brewer Lane, a couple of things. First of all, I think it will affect the businesses that we find most attractive. And that has to do with how compelling their use case is, how they look at uh, selling, and where they are in their development cycle. So companies that are deploying virtually, obviously, and that is most of the companies that we invest in, those Mm -hmm. kinds of companies will be in a stronger position. And companies that are able to withstand 18 to 24 months, maybe even longer, of no new funding will also be in a stronger position. So somebody who is developing a product now ironically, could be in a stronger position than someone who is rolling out a product. I think the other thing is it's going to come down to one of our theses, our investment theses, is around enabling incumbents. And I think that one of the things that that means is that companies that have a truly compelling solution for traditional insurers that solves a problem that they have right now, those companies can still succeed and get executive attention. It's a longstanding, well-known fact that getting the attention of insurers can be challenging. They have a lot of other things on their plate. Right now, I think that, that's, that statement has just gone on steroids with COVID. So if a, a startup is coming forward with an also-ran solution or coming up with a solution to something that is priority number 10 in an average time, I think that those companies are going to really struggle. And something that would change for us would be that those kinds of companies that aren't addressing an urgent problem will become much less fundable. Martha, do you feel like there's there's still an opportunity for the startups which are helping the insurance companies on the revenue side or just the cost side, right? You know, because clearly when you have a shock like this, when you enter a, a recession, you know, cost containment becomes sort of obvious and paramount. Uh, but I, I still think that some startups are trying to build things that will help on the revenue side. But are they fundable? I think they are if they if they are can 
offer a convincing argument. Um, and particularly, I think this is an area where some level of existing traction and pipeline, which is truly believable, is going to be more and more important. So that, um, for example, a company that has multiple customers and is able to do a land and expand strategy so that a significant amount of their growth could come from expanding existing customers will be in a much stronger position than uh, someone who is earlier in terms of their launch or who st makes single sales to each of these companies. So I, I do think I, I have a lot of uh, general optimism around some of the solutions. I think what is really changing here is the timeline. And as I say, you're attenuating a timeline where you're in a situation where your sales cycle was already long. Hmm. I'm, you know, all this makes me think about a interview that Rob and I did with uh, Chris Cheatham with Risk Genius. And he talked about, InsureTech 2.0 and how after all this is done, a new world of InsureTech could come out. And it gets me thinking about uh, current InsureTech companies pivoting within their, their current role into, into solving a different need. But then even now there's a whole new need in these insurance companies, uh, a whole new problem of working internally right? What, what do you, you know, I'll ask you Caribou first, what do you think that InsureTech 2.0 could look like uh, whenever the next normal comes about? Well, uh, I, I do think it is really interesting how uh, the, the consumer auto insurers are rebating right, in yeah. not quite real time. You know, that, that's, I don't know how exactly that shows up in you know 2.0, but I think there's something to it. And you could argue that like the the you know pay by mile kind of auto insurers, right, automatically do that for their customers, and in that sense they've they've already embraced that model. Um, yeah, you know I, I think that um, I think that there's this, this this might accelerate a push towards transparency. Right, one of the things that I think Lemonade gets fair credit for, as an example, is their emphasis on transparency, um, both uh, you know about what's going on within the company, but also you know making real strides in terms of the, the transparency to the consumer, right? Um, so that their their policies are at least more understandable, if not completely understandable, by a, a normal human being. And you know, I think in in many ways that follows from a philosophy around. No surprises, right? A, a reasonable customer should not be surprised. They might be disappointed, but they shouldn't be surprised when they find out, oh, I'm not covered for that. And um, you know, it's sort of the it's sort of the the mirror image of the auto insurance companies starting to issue these rebates that they didn't formally have to, right? Is then you're also finding, you know, especially on like the commercial interruption side, I think at least some uh you know, businesses are finding themselves kind of surprised to hear, oh, I'm not covered for that, right? I'm not covered for my business being completely interrupted by uh, this COVID thing. And again, it, it's it's not that the insurers uh, don't have the, the sort of language in the policy. It's just like it, it wasn't actually understood by the customer. Like, 
I've always said I, I love being part of the insurance industry. It's just fundamentally a good industry. Uh, but one of the few places where I think it sort of suffers at times as an industry is that the customers don't actually understand what they're buying. Right. Uh, and thus they get surprised um, uh, when you know, they find out when they have a claim. Is, that's right. And that's, that is the wrong time for someone to find out. Uh, so one of the aspects here, one of the, the downstream long-term consequences might actually be a push um, uh, at the, you know, whether it comes from the regulators or more likely from sort of the, the consumer advocacy side to really uh, ensure that there is reasonable understanding and, and that the policies are reasonably understandable by a normal, typical customer um, not just a typical customer's insurance lawyer. That would not surprise me. Martha, we spoke uh, briefly the other day about um, how this, uh, what Caribou just brought up, how it could affect the, the more established old school uh, insurers, this whole business interruption um, catastrophe that's going on. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I, I think I have, I have a couple of uh, strands of thought on that topic. The first one is, I think most traditional insurers have very clear language in their policies around pandemics that they're not covering business interruption. And what we have is we have legislatures who feel aggrieved on behalf of businesses that are legitimately hurting and they want someone to cover it, there are certainly discussions in several states that the legislatures could potentially change the contract that was entered into and force the coverage of a business, in, uh, business interruption for pandemic. The problem with that issue is that the economics are such that you could wipe out the entire capital of the insurance industry by changing that language. Yeah. So it's not a solution. It, 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 it just puts another in industry in a world of hurt. Right. So it doesn't help solve the problem. And that's why I think what you would probably have to see through this is more similar to what the federal government did after 9-11 when the insurance industry came and said, we can no longer cover terrorism risk. And there was a program uh, that was drafted called TRIA. And in fact, the insurance industry is already talking about PRIA, which would be pandemic cover coming from the federal government so that the businesses get that business interruption risk covered, but we don't torpedo the incumbent business insurance industry in the meantime. Kind of like what the NFIP does for flood? Only better. <laughs> well, there's that. But yes, it, it is similar to that. The one thing, in case you're interested in, the reason that the NFIP has troubles is because the NFIP program is calibrated for non-catastrophic loss. It is only calibrated to cover average loss. 
Is that and is that still how it's how it's done? Loss, but its economics have to absorb catastrophic loss as well. Right, right. And I, so, I agree with I agree with what Martha said there around like the right answer is not to retroactively um, change everyone's contract to what consumers or businesses might have thought it included. Right. right. I, I think that would be, as she says, a disaster. Um, I, I also think to your to your question there around like how does this industry transform how it gets business done? How does it work? Like there's this whole movement, right? This little work from home thing, right? Um, and yeah, I've been working from my basement for a lot uh, for the, over the last few years, but um, gosh, it seems like everyone is working from their basements now. Um, right. And uh, I think that I, I think that that actually is something that's going to be persistent, right? Not not to the same degree, of course, that it is today. Uh, and certainly nothing specific to the insurance industry, but all these all these companies, whether insure techs or you know longstanding incumbents, I think they've been forced to put their contingency plans into place, and I think they are figuring out what actually works and what doesn't, and they're discovering that at least in some regards, working from home does not have to be uh, systematically destructive to productivity. Um, it doesn't make sense to work from home necessarily five days a week in normal circumstances, but I, I would not be surprised if just you know, how work gets done, uh, particularly in a service industry, um, right? This is not you know assembling cars in a plant. That's right. hard to do work from home. Uh, uh, you know, I, I don't see why you can't carry over some of the practices um, that are implemented now in contingency over Agreed. to regular business as usual, at least for part of the work week. And, and maybe that's actually a, a really good thing for the bottom line of the companies. Uh, I don't need quite as much commercial real estate uh, as an example, and uh, could be good actually for the employees as well, right? I don't need to, uh, to do the long commute two days out of every five. And, and not to mention the environment. I mean, for us, uh, we're in Sacramento, California, the air has never been cleaner or not in recent history. So, um, there's, there, there are a number of upsides. And one of the things that we're discovering in our own business, in, in, in the business that we work for, because we've had ev almost everybody go home uh, and, and working from home, our productivity is good. Um, yeah. It's a very pleasant surprise. We've always held the, the idea that everybody has to be here, uh, although I, I, ironically, I am not. But in, in our headquarters is in Waco, Texas. And we, we have two big buildings where we house everybody. But what we found is, is that, um, it's working really well without anybody there. And, uh, but yeah. you know, I, I also wonder if everybody's working at home, people are driving less. So let's say 50% of the people who are working at home now stay working at home. Uh, what if we all have to come up with a plan that half of our employees work at home, so we're always prepared for a pandemic whenever it hits again? How does that, won't that also affect uh, insurance companies? I mean, do they have to change the way that they write policies, knowing that people are home more and people are not using their cars as much? Does that lead into a new world of insure tech like Metro Miles uh, or Metro Mile, where they're able to to write more policies because it's now I'm, I don't have an hour co commute. I now stay home 50% more. What, what is your y'all's thought on that? Every change is an opportunity. Mm. 
I mean, there's a reason that many of the best companies, many of the best, you know, venture backed startups uh, get formed in the course of a recession. Um, Right. The, The tough times, the challenges often are a great breeding ground for creative people to figure out what comes next. What can I yeah. do to actually help the world adapt to this change, right? And uh, create value. And and so, you know, every change is a dislocation for people too, right? So I, I wouldn't want to minimize right that there's pain and suffering uh, associated with that. Um, but I'm also fundamentally an optimist, and <laughs> you know I, I think that uh, with with those kinds of macro changes creates opportunity. It pushes people out of their comfort zones and uh, perhaps accelerates some trends that were on their way, but would have taken a couple, what would have taken a a decade or two takes a a month or two. Telehealth, right? Is a great example. Absolutely. Great example. You know, we've been talking about bending the cost curve on healthcare for a couple of decades, I think. And, you know, in places that's been done, but I bet telehealth is one of the best opportunities to bend the cost curve on healthcare uh, and the cost of delivering healthcare. And there was all this conventional wisdom skepticism around whether it can be effective. And of course, there's certain instances where it can't be. Right? Just like there are certain instances where, yeah, to really get work done well, you got to be in person for part of it. Right. I, I say that as a guy who's part of, uh, you know, assembling people together for a big event. So I'm a little biased. But the, um, you know, the, the, with these changes, with people forced to confront their assumptions about how to get health care, about how to get work done, right, now we're actually forcing people to stare at some facts around it, not just their assumptions. Martha, I, I to, to pick up on what we're, we're talking about here, do you, do you see this creating new opportunities and new uh, new new areas that that will emerge as a result? Oh, I definitely do. Um, I think that there will be new problems that we haven't considered in the past. I think the other thing is, and maybe Caribou alluded a little bit uh, to this. I feel like there is also an open mindedness that comes out of realizing that the old way we were doing it didn't work. And I feel as though the incumbent insurance companies have spent the last five years thinking about whether InsurTech was really a thing, whether it was a threat, whether there were ways to work together. And I think that the uh, consensus has been there are certainly opportunities to work together Going into this crisis with that openness, um, I think will end up in a situation where incumbents feel more comfortable turning to insurtechs and saying, you're more advanced on the technology side. Can you help me with this? So I think that there's going to be openness throughout that ecosystem because um, people are all thinking about it. I think the other thing that uh, might drive new ideas is there is a much more awareness 
of risk. And I think we alluded a little earlier to the fact that uh, life insurance, people are, are applying more for life insurance. This is, this is obviously a challenge at the moment because a lot of that can't be done entirely digitally. But I think that suddenly uh, consumers and companies are looking around and saying, a lot can change in a very short period of time. What can I do going forward to uh, insulate myself from those risks, to protect myself from those risks? So I think that there are going to be great new companies that are founded. I think some of those companies already exist and they may come up with new products. Mm. Pivot opportunity. So- so, Martha, will this change change the way you you interview and talk to new companies? Before the the pandemic, you probably never said uh, how are, how will you make it through uh, a closure of the world for an extended period of time. Is that is that something that is now I assume on your radar? And then thinking about that, which you don't know, perhaps. Absolutely. I think uh, there are not only different questions that we're asking. Uh, because I think very often as a VC, what you really are saying is, um, here is my money, please spend it according to the plan that we have laid out. And now there is a, a, a new scenario where we are saying, is that a necessary expense? And is this the right time to spend that money? So it, it, is, a, it is a drawing back in that regard, but I thought you were going to go down a different path, which is how do you invest in companies if you haven't already met that entrepreneur? Oh, yeah. yeah. Good question. What's the and answer? And I think that that's one of the issues. <laughs> uh, does How many Zoom meetings does it take to equal breaking bread together? Right. One of and my the, companies the answer is they've been doing a virtual um, um uh, meetings with some of their customers where they actually send them a bottle of wine for a specific time and then they sit down uh to uh to uh to have a drink together you you bring up such a great point and i was telling rob just the other day uh how i'm reading this new book thinking fast and slow and part of what i read this morning was about uh you you instantly make a decision on a person based on what you see. And it's not until you spend time with them to really get to know them. And we've talked to many uh, venture capitalists who say the best way to get to know an entrepreneur is to spend time with them, get to know them. That does bring up a whole new problem for you if you're only able to see from the waist up, right? I mean, only the the shirt that they have and and their setting, you're not able to get them out and really get to know them. That, that is a new a new problem I didn't even think about. Although, let me chime in here. The, okay. the, again, I, I, I said I'm an optimist. The positive spin on this is venture capital has been criticized. Um, and um, I, I'm not in a position to know whether it's been criticized fairly or unfairly, but it, it certainly sounds legit. Venture capital has been criticized for essentially investing in entrepreneurs who look and sound very, very much like the VCs themselves, right? And that applies to things like gender, and that applies to things like ethnicity, and that applies to educational background and the like. And, you know, the 
the ability to break bread with someone in person uh, would not surprise me if that's actually sort of a reinforcing of the sort of uh, bias towards investing in, in people who look and sound and feel like me. Um, so there's a, there's a chance, again, the optimist view of this, that by uh, changing the dynamic about how uh, an investor gets to know and trust the capabilities and assess an entrepreneur, um, as that shifts to something different than the in-person um, sort of experience, right? maybe it becomes more rigorous, more, more emphasis has to be placed on the back-channel diligence to, act, to talk to their customers and the employees and things like that. Maybe it uh, becomes a little bit more objective in some ways. Uh, there's a chance that um, this shift uh, to getting to know them in different ways than in person uh, might actually open the aperture a bit. Yeah, why, why, Martha, what do you what do you think about that? So, Caribou, I've also read some of the same um, studies around whether in-person interviews narrow the lens in terms of anytime you talk about cultural fit, it um, that very well might be a code for someone like me. So I, I do think that, that uh, there is a potential that uh, not um, meeting face-to-face is, uh, would open the aperture. I worry uh, that one of the things that we are likely to do is call each other up and say, oh, hey, Caribou, uh, do you know Lee? And then I'm going back to the exact same thing that you were complaining about, where I am reaching out to a member of the club to find out about somebody who's already a member of his club, and therefore I haven't really achieved um, a more open view of people than, uh, than what we had before. But I, I too am optimistic that people will be able to uh, make better decisions and maybe more objective decisions without the unconscious bias that each of us carries around with us. So that could be a potential um, very positive outcome. And in some ways, that's the same kind of unexpected positive outcome that we're talking about when we talk about companies identifying new problems after a crisis or even in the middle of a crisis that they are then able to build really strong companies out of. And it's it's very possible that we will end up making better investments because we will be more thoughtful about the entrepreneurs that we invest in. Yeah, and, and make no mistake, you know, the quality of the entrepreneur is never more important than when you're dealing with a crisis like we're dealing with now. Right. It's, right. Uh, you know, the old saying, man makes plans and God laughs. Well, an <laughs> entrepreneur can make all sorts of plans and the, the VC can back those plans. Right. Uh, and then God laughs. And, and here we are. I, I, I love that. I love that little discussion we had there because it really allows us to step back and say, what is the best way? What are we doing? Is there a different way? Um, I do have one more question that's popped in my head I want to ask you both. Uh, for years, and I, I don't think I can actually go back and say, I mean, I think I can say I actually heard somebody say this once, 
but I've always felt like the larger incumbents have sat back and said, we are tried, true, and tested. We know what's ahead of us. We've been around for 50, 100, 200 years. We are prepared for what's happening. And the startup companies who are selling insurance are not as prepared, you know, or they think they know, but they really don't. What are you seeing right now? Are the are the larger long-term companies, are they making it through better than the newer insured techs? Each one has their own power alley, their own powers of advantage. Right. And I think it's right that the the long-standing incumbents, right, they do have a resilience. They've been through these cycles, they've got a natural mindset. Uh, around how to get through these things, um, you know, they, they understand a stress test. Uh, I, I think on what, what they're not typically, typically, is nimble, right? Um, that sort yeah. of speed and agility is not what they're known for. Uh, on the flip side, that is what startups tend to be known for, right? You ask a startup, you know, how'd your last stress test go, and they're like, going to look at you sort of with a blank stare. But <laughs> if you ask them, you know, look, you know. How, how many weeks does it take you uh, to assess a situation like this to, and, and decide if you've got to do a layoff or, or just what, right? Their answer is going to be weeks. What weeks? It's how many days uh, right? did it take yeah. us to assess the situation? Um, and so it, it's not that I don't see one or the other is, you know, um, always advantaged. It, it's just that each one has different ways of dealing with a shock like this. Martha, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, and I think that one question is, will uh, the going forward, as each of them has been through this traumatic experience, will they appreciate each other more? Um, yeah. Or will each of them sort of go back in their corner and say, ah, oh, being well capitalized is a good thing um, and you don't have to be agile. I, but I, I really do believe um, that uh, that people who are sitting at the incumbent insurers are thinking, we were able to get through this because of our capitalization and because of what we've been building up um, our capital to do over all those years. But we could have reacted better if we had more agility. How do we go get more agility? So I actually do think that there is a potential uh, that this brings th those uh, two opposite sides of the ecosystem together. I, I have just a couple more questions we want to ask you guys. You've been so generous with your time today. Uh, I want to ask quickly about valuations. And, and I'll start with you, Martha, since you're more active in, in, in this. What does this do to valuations? Does it have an effect? Absolutely. Uh, and I think that it has it. If you look at the public stock market, of course, you see uh, that uh, there is a lot of volatility in how investors are valuing all companies at the moment. Right. I think the other thing that uh, for InsureTax specifically is that the uncertainty of projections for certainly 2020 
And then on a compounding basis into 2021, all of a sudden uh, you have taken um, a high degree of uncertainty and made it almost an astronomical uh, degree of uncertainty. Or maybe you you almost say, whatever you've done to date in 2020, I can give you credit for, but it's hard to see what else you're going to be able to deliver in 2020. So that when you talk about valuations, there are two components. One of them is what are the financial results and the or the expected financial results? And the other is what's the multiple I am going to apply to those? And I suspect that because the first one, the actual projected financial results are going, it, that number is going to be lower, then by definition, valuations will decline. I think everybody knows this. I don't, I don't think that this is an unfair topic to talk about. And I don't think um, that startups are surprised about this. I think startups who are raising money now are truly trying to be humble and prove their case and um, look for a fair exchange with their venture capitalists, which may mean raising inside capital, raising from people that you have known in the past, maybe that haven't invested, but that you have known in the past, and also adjusting your expectations about how much capital to take at this point versus waiting and taking it when the picture becomes clearer. I think everybody is kind of in this together, um, but I mm -hmm. think valuations will definitely decline. Yeah. Flat is the new up, right? And that applies to valuation, right, for a funding round. That also applies to performance, you know, on the revenue line, right? If you've got some startup that uh, is actually able to, to maintain uh, some meaningful revenues through Q1, Q2, Q3 of this year, that's actually pretty good. Um, and and then there's going to be those uh, those startups out there that are kicking themselves because they think that they they blew it on timing. Um, now now is not probably the best time to be look, be in the uh, money raising business. But um, I wanted to give you both one last uh, uh, an opportunity to uh, comment or, or share a thought or, or wisdom that, that we haven't hit on yet today, um, if, if that's the case. So please, um, just open mic, whatever, however you guys would like to close out any thoughts or wisdom that you'd like to share with our audience. So from an operational standpoint, right, I think that we're in a, you know, a mini ice age. Right? Everyone's a little bit frozen up because uncertainty is just so massive. Um, you know, we're starting to get a little less uncertainty. The, the pandemic curves are starting to behave and be actually modelable, right? The sort of financial markets are getting a little bit more manageable and we're starting to see, uh, you know, the, the various uh, financial and monetary authorities step in. But I, I think that until the uncertainty gets within bands that we can sort of wrap our heads around, it's going to be very hard for anyone to make any any major decisions, right? Whether it's doing a partnership, doing an investment deal, what have you. Um, you know, if I were to try to find a metric around, okay, at what point does this mini Ice Age thaw? I, I just, 
I'm looking at the VIX, right? The, the volatility index of the S&P 500 mm-hmm. and basically saying to people I know, until the VIX falls below 30, you have to assume that no one will make any commitments anywhere and that you probably should not make any commitments anywhere. Once the VIX falls below 30, all right, we're in a normal-ish situation again. But until then, business is likely to be frozen up. Martha? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, for me, uh, the, the real question is thinking about why are we doing it this way and are there bigger problems that I can be going after? So it is around envisioning what you want the future to look at, but absolutely what today's task is, is about surviving through what Caribou refers to as the Ice Age. That's great. Thank you both. And, and with that, we will, we will bring this to a close. And uh, a, a very, very big thank you to both Caribou Honig and Martha Nuteris, no Terrace, for uh, taking the time today out of their busy schedules and joining us. Thank you all so much. We appreciate it. A total pleasure. What a pleasure to have Martha and Caribou on with us today and that whole enormous library of knowledge and know-how that they represent uh, to help kind of contemplate the next normal. I, I couldn't agree with you more. A lot of times in our podcast, we're interviewing companies about exactly what they do. And today was just a great discussion that uh, really affects every one of our listeners. Every one of our listeners is thinking, what is what is the next normal? What mm-hmm. is what does the future hold? How am I going to change and, and what's going to be available? So it was a great discussion just to really open up everybody's mind that everybody's thinking about it. And uh, as as Martha said, the the next normal is is what's on on the horizon. We after the podcast we talked about volatility, and what what a what a crazy time of uncertainty that that right. we're in. Um, and so all we can do is kind of sit here and think about what will it be like. Where are those opportunities? And like Caribou said during the during the podcast, these times. Mm-hmm. Are, are, are what great ideas come out of. That's exactly right. They give birth. The, the tension and the stress and the pressure and the unforeseen um, new world give birth to new opportunities. Yeah, yeah. And I believe, I wholeheartedly believe that there'll be great opportunities that'll come out of this. There'll be great ideas. There's super smart people sitting mm-hmm. at home saying, you know, if I only did this, and I encourage them. I encourage them uh, to do that. Help make the world a better place. Help prepare us for the next time something like this happens. History right. does repeat itself. Right. Uh, I, I encourage, I encourage the dreamers to dream and 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 to do. And with that, we will say thank you for being with us. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you to Martha Noteras and Caribou Honig who graced our microphones today and. We wish you all uh, safety and health and look forward to being with you guys on the next normal. And until then, we'll say goodbye, everybody.